Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. Today, we're talking to Stephen Orbaugh, and he is an anesthesiologist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. He has published some 75 works in the medical literature, including peer-reviewed articles, textbook chapters, and review articles. In addition, he's the author of two medical textbooks and has served as an editor or section editor for several more. In 2006, the John Hopkins University Press published his nonfiction book, Understanding Anesthesia. Five years ago, he published his first fiction work, a Night in the Life, which describes the plight of a disenchanted emergency physician. And he has recently published his second novel, The Stairs on Billy Buck Hill. Now, Stephen is an anesthesiologist, and often with that, they work with very powerful opioid drugs. And he has witnessed a number of ruined careers related to addiction among his peers who have access to these highly addictive substances. So Stephen is going to talk about how his own personal experiences of witnessing his colleagues get trapped in addiction inspired him to write this book and how he hopes this book can help future anesthesiologists steer clear of addiction. And if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget, leave us a review on iTunes, it really does help people find the podcast. I really appreciate it. And you can also now find us on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. So check that out too. All right, everyone, stay tuned for this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind. My guest today is Stephen Orbaugh, and he is the author of a new novel, The Stairs on Billy Buck Hill. And it is about an anesthesiologist that falls into addiction in his own world. And Stephen, you are an anesthesiologist and you've seen your peers fall into addiction. Exactly. And that's one of your motivations for writing this novel. So tell me a little bit about you and so we can understand what is an anesthesiologist anyway? What do they do? And why would this be an issue in your practice? And we'll just jump in from there. 
Sure, sounds great. My background was originally in emergency medicine and then had an interest in critical care medicine, which is ICU medicine. Came back after the emergency medicine and retrained in anesthesiology because that was a pathway to getting into the uh, ICU, but found that I really enjoyed doing anesthesiology. So when I came out of that second residency, I split my time between emergency medicine and anesthesiology for a good six or seven years. And then life became difficult scheduling wise. I got married. I got a house. I got a puppy. I got a baby. And it was just too hard to continue those two sort of somewhat competing different uh, medical tracks. So I chose anesthesiology and uh, from about 2002 onward, that was my, that's been my full-time avocation. So I tend to specialize in regional anesthesia, which is providing nerve blocks. So many people in anesthesiology have a subspecialty, but we all take care of people of all different stripes and ages. But I tend to focus on adults having orthopedic surgery. And so I do a lot of nerve blocks. But that doesn't mean I don't do general anesthesia as well. So I take care of a lot of people that don't get nerve blocks. And when you train in anesthesiology, one of the areas where you tend to become, tend to get a degree of expertise is in pain management. And a lot of that has to do with opioids. For many, many years, opioids were our, our most potent way of taking care of pain. We have a lot of other medications these days that we can use. But you tend to become pretty expert in the use of opioids. And perhaps uh, around 1999 or 2000, there was a hue and cry from the people that sort of broadly look at medicine and medical care to realize that there was a huge pain epidemic in this country. A lot of pain right. wasn't being treated very adequately. And then the, the way things moved, there was a suggestion and even a pressure for doctors to start treating people more aggressively. And outside of perhaps regional anesthesia nerve blocks, which is the, the sort of the area primarily for anesthesiologists and to some degree perhaps emergency physicians, most other physicians don't do that. So they were primarily using opioids to help people with their pain. And there was a lot of pressure from big pharma, as you know, in this uh, past couple of decades to use the long-acting opioids, which looked like they were going to deliver fantastic pain relief without problems. And that turned out not to be the case. There were lots of problems with them. But medicine moved in the direction of uh, aggressive pain management for probably 10 or 12, maybe even 15 years from 2000 to 2015. And then it became clear that we were hurting a lot of people with opioids. And so we moved sort of back in the other direction. And now there's a lot more emphasis on sparing opioids as best we can. We found that at some point, probably in 2014 or 15, that 5 to 10% of people who get operations will end up with opioid use disorder, which is a huge number wow. of people in this country. That, it's that huge. Is, I didn't realize it was that big. 5% it's a, is, it's a, is... It's a striking number. There are many millions of surgeries done in this country each year. And so now there's been a pendulum swing back, of course, in the other direction to avoid opioids as much as possible. And regional anesthesia provide, providing nerve blocks is a big part of that. So that's kind of where my piece of the puzzle is as far as anesthesia practice. But what anesthesiologists do is they see patients preoperatively. They tend to optimize their condition so they can make it through the surgery safely. They supervise their anesthesiology. Sometimes they do that by hand in the operating room. At other times, they do it by supervising nurse anesthetists who are advanced nurse practitioners who also have a great deal of experience and interest in anesthesia. And uh, so we may uh, supervise several rooms with nurse anesthetists or maybe one person in the room taking care of one patient. Different practice models prevail at different parts of the country. And then after surgery, we also take a role in making sure the patient's stable and that we help manage their pain. And again, different practice patterns prevail at different uh, places. For instance, at the university, it's common for a, an acute pain team to manage patients for several days after more serious operations. Those acute pain doctors are usually anesthesiologists. So if you go to community hospitals, you may not see that. They may just manage them in the recovery room and with a consultation sort of basis on the floors. And I would imagine, you know, with this, that means you have access to these very powerful painkillers 
Yes, yes. I was just going to mention that, you know, when I was a resident, we, we handled uh, every day, we handled large numbers of narcotics, pr presumably to provide them to our patients. But there is that ever-present threat, because there's not always someone watching you in the operating room. There's the ever-present threat that someone who becomes mixed up with those drugs or uh, unfortunately becomes uh, addicted or dependent on those drugs can siphon those drugs off. They call it diversion. And it's a, it is a big problem, as you mentioned. There's even a, an international health care Diversion Association, which I learned about and actually presented a, a little talk at their meeting in the fall. But from all over the world, there are hospitals that send representatives to this organization because diversion is such a problem among the healthcare workers. Easy access to these drugs is particularly problematic. So there are lots of ways that they try to prevent this, but often people can be kind of crafty and find ways around it. But it was relatively wide open, I would say, in the 90s when I was learning my, my craft and even probably into the mid-2000s. And since then, I've noticed a, a severe increase in the degree of oversight. But even that, you can tell that there are holes and there are still ways that you could siphon off drugs. And so... So real quick, I just want to ask about that in a little bit more detail. So maybe someone who's struggling with addiction is also an anesthesiologist. They have access to these drugs. So maybe they give a dose, but then they take some for themselves to fuel their addiction. And the patient doesn't get the pain management that they need, and the person is is also getting the drugs, sure, and and harming themselves and absolutely, and, and and this is exactly the mechanism that the anesthesiologist in the book uses because among some people that I knew that this happened to, that's how they ended up being able to get access to these drugs. Obviously, we're accountable at the end of the case for how much we use, and then we have to take it back to the pharmacy, and they check it very, very carefully, and if any is missing, it's a very big deal. But there are crafty ways intraoperatively that you could perhaps substitute some saline or water for that fentanyl that you say you injected to the patient. And perhaps in your judgment, he needs two cc's of fentanyl, 100 micrograms, well, you give him four cc's. And there's no one's probably going to come along and look and say, you know, he didn't need four. He only needed two. Why did you give him four? But if that kind of pattern becomes prevalent, people might start to notice. And I've seen some people get caught because of that. But you're right. I mean, you can absolutely siphon it off and no one's really there watching you each time you crack an ampule and pull up some additional fentanyl or dilaudid or whatever it is that you're using for the patient. And one of your inspirations for this book was watching some of your colleagues go through this process or go through addiction and struggle with addiction. And that must be pretty painful to watch. It's really touching. And I have to say, I saw this happen to about a half a dozen people over maybe a decade, which doesn't sound like a lot, but they were all people that were either in training. And so you sort of value the fact that they're going to come up in the ranks and, and be part of your team or, or a, a team somewhere else. And healthcare workers tend to be very supportive of each other, or they were people that I'd worked with for some period of time. And I honestly had no idea that they were addicted to opioids. And one day somebody found a problem with the count and they began to be a little bit more observant of them. And this happened again and again. And suddenly they tested them and found out that they were addicted to opioids. But in none of those cases did I see the person acting as if they were, quote unquote, high or chemically altered at the time. So I think that they're often able to disguise it very well. And unless you do drug testing, you may not be able to see this because people are very invested in finding ways to use it in very secretive ways. Right. Right. So you don't, you don't see that problem. I mean, they can hide that problem really well. Very effectively. I'm surprised at that. But often what happens is they end up getting tripped up by their own persistence because 
as we all know with opioids, initially you need this much, but eventually you need this much to get kind of the same effect. And as you use more and more, you have to become a little bit more obvious with how much you're taking out and you may amplify how much you're giving to patients. And suddenly when they compare you to the next person for some particular type of case, say it's a, a cataract case, which requires very little of these drugs, you're using three to four times the amount that someone else is. And they realize that you're probably uh, diverting this for yourself. And that's how a couple of people that I know of were, were caught in this. How, you know, for the anesthesiologists, they're here in this medical profession, they're doing all this work. How does that start for them? You know, getting to these very potent, powerful drugs, there's obviously a doorway in which they walk through at some point that that gets them into this problem. What have you seen? Well, I, I mean, that question, how, do, how does someone learn it and really understands not only how these drugs work, but also how they can be the downfall for other people? We really understand that because we see people who have been right. addicted all the time and how it ravages their bodies. So the, the crux of that question is kind of the reason that I wrote this book, because I was trying to explore that in my mind. Why would this guy, why would anybody make that decision? But I think that sometimes it comes from the fact that they may have maybe had a root canal and gotten a few Percocets and found that they liked them and the pain persisted. So they went back and they got a few more. And as I said, we used to be a little more open with providing them. And the next thing you know, a person like that may have to be seeking them. And then the Percocets run out and they can't go to this or that drugstore. They can't get their PCP to write any more scripts. So the next thing you know, if they have access, they'll find a way to get that drug from the hospital. So I think some of them might have become addicted through that fashion. Others may simply be willing to experiment I've seen people addicted to propofol, which is a drug we use for sleeping. It doesn't seem to me like it would be very enjoyable, but people will find ways to, to experiment with almost all of these chemicals. And sometimes it, if they have that sort of addictive personality, I think it sticks. And as, as you've noted, the ability to do that is, is just so open when you're in an operating room all day by yourself and you have these drugs in the drawer. Right. And they're available to you. And, you know, I'm also just thinking like there's two things, you know, we look at opioids for that physical pain, but that emotional pain. So I would imagine, too, if someone has some kind of trauma history, maybe some earlier kind of emotional psychic pain, these drugs can be much more attractive. And so, oh, like you said, so. they they do, you know, they go and they get a root canal and they have this experience and they go, wow, this is just, this takes that underlying pain away, that psychic pain away. And it's just intoxicating and it's relief. And then all of a sudden, well, guy, it's right in front of me. I'm Why just, not try it? You know, no one's going to notice it. I can hide this and boom. And then, but as you said, this always leads to a bad end. I think it's almost impossible to maintain a very steady, small use of this. I think it will always amplify itself because the nature of the drugs is that they go to certain receptors and they give you this intense euphoric pleasure, but those receptors get dulled over time by the stimulation. So you need to take more and more of the drug to get to that same level. And the next thing you know, you get caught because you're just taking more and more of the drug. And I think that's what ends up tripping probably most people up rather than them appearing and being unable to make a decision or falling flat on the floor and stopping breathing the way you might find an overdose on the street. I think that's probably less likely. Right. So this is your, I believe, your second book of fiction. It is. That you've written. And so it sounds like this is really personal to you because you've seen this happen to others. You've, you've seen sure. your colleagues, your friends, I'm imagining, 
you know, lose everything to this. And they, they do. If it's not if it's not losing everything in health because they're found out and they can go through rehabilitation, they certainly lose a lot in terms of community stature, friendships, their ability to work. Usually a health system won't take you back. There are mechanisms where nurses and doctors can kind of go and rehabilitate that are sponsored by the state and let them get back into health care. But of course, the scrutiny is very high. They may find that the doors are not wide open for them the way they once were, even if they're well-trained. So they lose a lot. And uh, in the process, you're unemployed for a long time. You obviously have huge financial implications. And just that feeling yourself of you know, being a healthcare worker, your job ultimately is to protect others. And you can't do that optimally when you're taking opioids or alcohol or any of these other drugs. And so that I think there's probably a huge sense inside that you let yourself and everybody down, even though the nature of these chemicals is so profound that you know, you could reasonably conclude they couldn't help it because once that, once as you say, the door was open, they just couldn't stop. Right. They're just going. So in writing this book, how did you start to put it together? And how did you start to decide, this is how I want to do it. This is how I want to share this story. Good, good question. I, like many physicians, when we look at the period between, you know, 2010, 2016, there were just more and more alerts and more and more warnings that we were overusing opioids and we needed to find other ways to deal with that. And we were hearing these numbers, which have now become astronomical, but even back then, tens of thousands of people were dying per year of opioid use, abuse, overdose, etc. And so as a physician, you want to make whatever impact you can. I'm not an addiction specialist, but I admire those people or a chronic pain specialist who deal with a lot of addiction. I think that's a hard job and I admire what they do for the community in my sort of more acute pain role, though I wanted to make whatever contribution I could. And this was the part of it that touched my life most closely. So I thought that if I could write an authentic and hopefully even entertaining and touching book that chronicled how a physician could fall into this abyss of drug abuse, that maybe it would serve healthcare workers, especially those in training, to read this and, and help prevent them, help them understand how dangerous this potentially was so that they wouldn't fall into the same potential thing. Every year in our residency, we get our residents together and we have a an evening session where people come and talk about this, give testimonials, and we show a film and they have a dinner and we talk about just this one topic, the potential for anesthesiology residents to fall into this because the job is so stressful and it's very stressful when you're in training. There's a lot of long hours and there's a lot of fatigue and just a lot of the stress of learning and then trying to take good care of patients. There's stress on you from all directions. Your family, of course, or your wife needs your attention. Your home needs your attention. Your job needs lots of your attention and studying outside of clinical care. All of those things really stretch people and people deal with stress in different ways. Some of them potentially will reach out for something that's going to soothe that psychic irritation as you talked about, and some of them might reach for drugs. Most of us at some point in our lives have probably had anesthesia. And I know a few times when I had it, I had fentanyl and another drug called midazolam. And when I had them, this is preoperatively just to kind of soothe you before you go into the operating room, I felt so so euphoric, so completely happy that I, I thought to myself each time I got them, this is why people got, become addicted to these drugs, because there's nothing that I've experienced quite like this in my life. And it's very easy, I think, to if you just experience it a little bit, to go back to it and think, man, I felt great. I can do that again. And this will help me through some of these rough patches. And it also sounds, as you're saying that, you know, you experienced that euphoria, but you also had that fear, like, whoa, I, this actually is so good, it kind of scares me, right? Knowing like, I, I'm, I'm not going ever, I'm not going close to that. 
So the people that maintain exactly that inner sort of wall that you talked about are the people that understand it, but would probably never lapse into it. But other people may not have quite such a strong erect barrier to it. And when yeah. they're willing to pass through it, once it, my sense is, once you get into the non-medicinal, uh, you know, use of it, you're, you're kind of lost. You've now crossed a threshold that's going to change your life and you're going to have to have a huge intervention to change it back. It'll be very difficult to do by yourself, most likely. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, without giving the story too much away, tell me a little bit about this character's journey and kind of what we see as we go through the novel. Sure. So he's a, a young and relatively recently trained physician, but he's taking on more and more responsibilities. He's not married. He had a girlfriend he was very close to. She left and went. Uh, she was a nurse, a traveling nurse, and she left. And uh, he found himself feeling very alone and from an emotional standpoint, rather disconsolate, but from a professional standpoint, pretty fulfilled. And his chief was asking him to do more and more. He was taking on more and more responsibilities. A lot of his evenings were spent crunching numbers, doing research, writing papers. Daytimes were pretty stressful taking care of patients, but he loved teaching and he loved um, doing the research and providing care in, for, uh, for patients in the, in the operating room. And he meets a girl who's very lovely. She happens to be a patient and she's having a pain problem. Her surgeon's out of town, so she asks him if he will prescribe some additional pain medications, which he's happy to do, uh, just on a very short-term basis. And he gets to know her. She comes back for another reason. He gets to know her. She starts to flirt with him just a little bit, and he's very flattered because, as I say, his life at this point emotionally is kind of empty. And next thing you know, she invites him to a party. They chat. They're sort of falling for each other. And then she begins to intimate, and he doesn't want to hear this, but she begins to intimate that she needs more of these drugs. And he's really not willing at first to prescribe more of them because he understands the potential danger, but he really wants this woman's company. And so he sort of makes this trade-off. Okay, we'll give you a few more of them. And then one night after they become romantically involved, she says, you know, you should try this. It just makes you feel fantastic. His argument, of course, is I would never do that. I'm an anesthesiologist. And this was sort of that difficult part of the novel. How would me trying to fantasize how someone would get around that corner and, and let those barriers down? So I hope that it's realistic and authentic. And I will let readers decide that. But, you know, in that sort of emotional moment where he's thinking, okay, so if I don't take these medications and sort of go along with what this lovely woman wants me to do, who seems to have a genuine affection for me, maybe she's going to leave me. And so he takes a pill and he thinks nothing of it, but then it starts to make him feel very, very good. And then the next day he goes home and he's extremely angry with himself. He walks around the city just disconsolate and trying to think through this whole problem, but knowing that she's got this incredible hold on him and he's stealing himself for the next time that they're together because he knows it'll probably come again. And naturally it does. And so he says, okay, maybe just one more time. I'll try this. This is not going to have a hold on me. I understand these drugs, but very suddenly and very soon he's elevated into kind of a whole different social status with her, uh, status with her. And uh, they're going to Penguin games and pirate games and football games and, and mixing with sort of an upper echelon of the social strata of the city. He wasn't previously involved, but he likes this very much. And so the next thing you know, he's more willing to take these drugs and their romantic encounters are much more maybe vivacious or fueled by these. And then the next thing you know, he's writing these prescriptions and she's obtaining them from her surgeon. And they realize this is going to be a big problem because then we now have these databases, et cetera. And he knows that if he keeps writing these, they're going to get caught. So he decides then that uh, she suggests that maybe he could get a little fentanyl from the operating room. And he sits down and says, yeah, sure. Why not? And, and part of him says, you know, three months ago, this would have been a crazy idea. 
but I think I can do this and it'll be even l less risky for us because no one's going to be able to follow a paper trail and probably this drug will be even more intense because I know I give it to my patients, I know what it's like. He begins using, siphoning off the fentanyl but not using it at work and then once again, the, you know, the romantic encounters and the, the social joys that he has by taking these drugs takes him to a place he's never been before. And then he begins to encounter stresses at work because he's spending more time with this woman. There's more and more demands. That begins to break down, and that becomes a really a sort of a provocative thing for him. Then he gets into trouble with a few patient encounters that aren't going well, and the stresses at work become maddening. And he thinks, you know, if I just had a little bit of that drug, I'd probably feel great, and it's not going to affect my decision-making capability. In fact, if anything, I'm sharper when I use these drugs. So he dips into the bathroom, takes a little bit of this medication, injects some fentanyl, and sure enough, he comes comes out, his whole disposition has changed. He feels as though he can teach better, he can apply his abilities better, he can he can take better care of the patients, he's on a better interactive level with his with his uh, subordinates and his trainees and everyone. And every he thinks everyone just finds him almost impossibly wonderful to work with when he's under the influence of these drugs. Well, this happens a couple of times and then on a really stressful day he ducks into the bathroom and as he does so the door flies open and he gets hit in the head, falls on the floor, and you can imagine what happens next. His whole right. life begins to unravel as they find out what he's doing. And so that's the nadir of his life. And then he gets some opportunities for sort of uh, uh, reinventing himself and tr tries to take those. And that's how the last third of the novel goes on. Right. And, and, and how does this story kind of reflect your own experience with uh, your, your peers that, you know, people that were affected by this, that you worked with and saw this happen to? I never saw anyone have a traumatic encounter like that, but we have had some trainees that have been found to be impaired enough and one actually found on the bathroom floor that I know this can happen to people. They just continually slowly ramp up their use of it until something really tragic happens. In a few of the other cases, it was just reporting for work and not being quite with it and people saying, this, some, this is not him. And the next thing you know, they're testing for drugs. But I wanted to have this sort of a traumatic and, and really insightful moment where he realizes, okay, my whole life has just changed and there's nothing I can do about it. Everything collapses around him. And then he has to begin to put all the pieces back together again, which is possible, but it's very difficult to do. I think there's something like a 40 to 50% recidivism rate among anesthesiologists who use substances and are off for the attempt to get back into the system. So it's not easy to, to be able to come back. Yeah, definitely. You know, in in my career as a mental health care worker and working in the field of addiction, I've worked with a few doctors and anesthesiologists that have struggled with this issue. And it is a really hard, hard road back that, you know, one of the things that I really noticed was the shame that they felt about their addiction and being a doctor, being sure. in this in this place of responsibility and and betraying that responsibility and the internal shame and guilt and all of that, you know, and processing through that piece and, and walking through that is just, it, you, you can just see how overwhelming it is. I, I think that you, you bring up a good point about shame because the very essence of anesthesiology is vigilance. I think that's one of the, you know, the mottos of our specialty. And if, if obviously, if you're addicted to medications, if you're impaired in any way, you can't be maximally vigilant. So you've sort of really just corroded the very essence of what you're supposed to do. It's hard to come back from that and feel good about what you're doing. I, I do think it's possible, but you're right. There's that sort of stain internally that's difficult to get rid of. Yeah, there was a lot of practice of self-compassion and and really, you know, trying to 
live to back into their own integrity of this and, and to to get that back. And it was it was a long journey for them. And I do deal with some of that in the latter part of the book, too. This is very difficult for his family's ashamed of him. His young nephews that idolized him suddenly are ashamed of him. And that just cuts him to the quick. It's a very difficult time for him. Yeah, absolutely. I I think this is such an important work, you know, bringing these stories so that people who are struggling with this or knowing other people who are struggling with this have some story to relate to that they're not alone in that either and that there yes. is support and help out there. Yes, I think that's essential. This is almost impossible to do by yourself, no matter how steadfast and, and steeled you are against the idea of just taking those drugs again. You need enormous social support to be able to keep pushing it away and, and find other things in your life that, that pull you in a positive direction instead of the potential to go back to what feels good, but what feels very good, but is so bad you know, for them. Right. And it really, you know, your book really goes to, talks to the point that anybody can be impacted by addiction if the circumstances are are right for that and that you know even if you're a doctor even if you're this or that addiction doesn't care it 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 will overtake you right we all have vulnerabilities at points in our life this was a vulnerable time for this main character she was the wrong woman at the wrong time in the wrong circumstance I don't mean to demonize, you know, necessarily that I, I hate that sound, you know, uh, feminist or masculine or whatever, just that she was a femme fatale at the wrong place at the wrong time for this guy. At other time in his life, he might have been able to say, you know, I can't give you any more drugs. It was great meeting you, but he couldn't do that at this point in his life. Yeah. What What was your biggest hope for this book uh, to accomplish with this and to write this and put it, put that out there? Sure. My biggest hope is that uh, uh, people that work in healthcare, whether it's nursing or medicine or advanced practice providers, or, and especially trainees, the people that we kind of worry about the most because we think that they're under the most stress and maybe the most vulnerable, that they would, they would get this message and be able to understand how insidious the drugs are, how they sneak in and kind of destroy you from within in subtle ways. It's not like you open the door one day and they destroy your life. It can take weeks, months, and you, in the meantime, you think you're in control. And this guy thought, is a, this was a very... I think gifted and practiced and what do I want to say accomplished practitioner who was well established in his academic practice and even with all that protection as soon as these drugs got a hold of him they changed his entire mindset and made him no longer willing to see how they would corrode what what he could do and take away his abilities in the most sort of um, insidious fashion so I'm hoping that young people would read this and see that you know you can't control this and if it gets a hold of you, it's probably going to destroy your life. That's my biggest hope, that this could make some small impact. I was talking a lot about earlier about how doctors began to recognize a decade ago how many problems were being caused, not only by physicians, but the whole, let's call it the opioid environment or the opioid, there's a word for it. Uh, and yeah, environment might be the best word. But that all of us want to make some small impact in some small way. And this was my attempt to make a small impact on opioid use and abuse, and in particular within within the healthcare specialties. Yeah, you know, it goes back to what we were talking a little bit earlier about your own experience, where you kind of felt that, wow, this is really, really good. But at the same time, you also had the, the, the fear of it. Like, I know this is too good. And that scares the, you know, the living daylights out of me in a way yes. like, boom, that hopefully, you know, I'm thinking your book can can get to these young doctors 
so that they can they can read it and and maybe manifest that fear and that healthy fear i guess i would say like yes you know whoa and and so maybe they'll have that same experience and and go this i could be this character Absolutely. if i'm not if i'm not careful and to really like understand that it's almost like when i when i hear you talk you know that too like you could be this character yes if i didn't put in that that healthy fear if that makes sense i don't know sure and part of that healthy fear for me when I did experience these drugs was having seen what happened to some other people. Yeah. And I knew that these, you know, one of them was uh, someone that I really admired and looked up to who had taught me when I was a resident. And I was stunned when I found out that he had been involved in this and that his, uh, his ability to practice was now taken away. And luckily it wasn't a healthcare problem for him, but it certainly resulted in a ma- major change in his ability to practice medicine. And uh, to me, that was just stunning because I knew what talent and, abilities he had so to see someone like that fall by the wayside when you know that you know they've lost all their potential i didn't want to do that also so just as you say an internal wall or some sort of internal understanding of how bad it can be and i hope the book might be able to provide that for some people when they read it and think yes this could have been me or it could be someone that i love that's in medicine that could undergo the same thing right and then that that you know maybe like I, I, I know in being a licensed marriage and family therapist and stuff like that, there were a lot of like actually novels and books that we had to read, stories that illustrated certain points about our profession that were really helpful to communicate these things, to learn and be, a, you know, a better therapist, a better provider, a better healthcare provider to understand some of these risks too in different ways. So it, it's always been really helpful to get these kind of stories, even though they're works of fiction, they, they have really important points to, to, to share. So I think right. that's really awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So we're kind of getting to our time here. I always mm-hmm. like to ask every guest one question at the end, and maybe this would be directed to people in the helping profession. You could tell them one thing, what would you want to, what would you want them to know? So just please understand that there's, there is nothing about these drugs that can ever be helpful to you. And that even if you think that they would help you cope with a difficult situation, they will inevitably destroy you. So you need to, to maintain a barrier that never entertains the thought that maybe I can try these, but I can control it. They cannot be controlled. Opioids are way too powerful, way too insidious. Nurture that healthy fear. Yes. Nurture I, the healthy fear. Well yeah. said. Absolutely. Thank you, Stephen. Where can people find your book, The Stairs on Billy Buck Hill? Where can they oh, find sure. it if they want to read it? Uh, on Amazon. Um, it's uh, easy to find there. You could go to my website, but it's, I think it's easier to order directly from Amazon. And also the publisher as well, Sunbury Press in uh, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. But I think the easiest thing is probably just go right through Amazon. Two awesome. Clicks. I will put all the links in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. Stephen, thank you so much for coming You're on. Very kind. Thank you for doing this work and, and sharing sure. this story. It's it's in it's important and um, I think will help a, a lot of people out there and maybe prevent some tragedies. I appreciate the opportunity to speak about it with you. It's been a great opportunity for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes and links will be at theaddictedmind.com. So you can check that out. And if you have enjoyed the Addicted Mind podcast, got a lot out of it, 
please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help. And you can now get a hold of us on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. So check that out as well. And you can reach out to us there, especially if you have any ideas of cool guests that could be on the podcast. Love to hear about it. Love to get your questions. That would be really awesome. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.